Marshall Billings Lee has worked on a range of significant national security issues. He was Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing at the Treasury Department, President of the International Financial Action Task Force, Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict, and Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Negotiations Policy. He's also been an Assistant Secretary General at NATO. Last April, he was appointed Special Presidential Envoy for Arms Control, personal rank of ambassador. I would imagine that's been a challenging portfolio over the months that have followed. To find out more, we've asked him to join me, Cliff May, and my colleague, Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. You're invited to join us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Well, Ambassador Billingsley, welcome. Glad to get to speak with you. Am, am I right about this being a challenging assignment? You've had to deal with the, the Russians who cheat, the Chinese who I think uh, are less interested in arms control than in arms races. Uh, the rulers of Iran and North Korea have no interest in arms control. Maybe start just by giving us a general sense of your work this year. What's your life been like? Well, Clifford, again, thank you uh, for the kind introduction, and it is great to be here with you. Uh, you run an outstanding uh, policy institute that I've had the privilege of working with over the years in several of those different capacities, and uh, I do appreciate the chance to discuss with you uh, really the historic juncture that we are now at in the field of nuclear arms control. Uh, we're at a moment that we haven't seen since the Reagan era. Uh, since the Reagan-Gorbachev agreement at Reykjavik. Uh, and the reason I say that, uh, Clifford, is that President Trump uh, offered President Putin the opportunity to do something that none of his predecessors were willing or able to do. And that is to put a cap on both countries' nuclear warhead stockpiles to cover all nuclear warheads. This was a bold and unprecedented proposal uh, it's something that the United States Senate effectively demanded when it narrowly ratified the New START Treaty under the Obama administration. Now, the Obama administration was unable to get it done over the eight years of their tenure, uh, but we were able to get it done in just six months of pretty intensive negotiations with the Russians. Uh, we, in fact, reached an agreement at the highest levels of the United States and Russia to do exactly that for the first time ever, put a cap on nuclear warhead uh, stockpiles. In terms of Russia, does Russia have a, a, a grand strategy? Is Russia genuinely interested in arms control agreements that it will abide by? I mean, it, I mentioned before, and maybe comment on this, Russia has a long history of cheating on these agreements, uh, and, and not just uh, at the margins, but just egregious and chronic violations. Am, am I wrong about that? 
No, uh, you're spot on. Uh, and in fact, um, I don't know that Russia has a grand strategy, uh, but Russia does have a strategy, and it's a strategy uh, that is uh, designed to, within their limited financial means and within their military means, uh, to attempt to counter U.S. interests uh, around the world, wherever uh, they may occur, whether we're talking about Venezuela or we're talking about Libya or Syria uh, or the Crimea. Uh, Russia uh, seems uh, inclined and determined to, to thwart um, U.S. national security interests and equities. Arms control to them is simply a means to an end uh, because they as you point out, uh, are guaranteed to cheat on any agreement that meaningfully constrains them. Uh, they view arms control largely as a way of putting constraints, unilateral or one-way constraints on the United States and our allies. And of course, uh, under the Trump administration, uh, we're not going to agree to any of that. Uh, we are only going to uh, conclude an agreement with the Russians if it has a robust and effective verification regime because we know they will cheat if it has meaningful uh, constraints on them. Brad, you want to come in on this? You have some thoughts on negotiating with Russia, the treaties we have with Russia, the, what we can and cannot accomplish in terms of arms control with Russia? Thanks, Cliff, and it's an uh, honor to join you, Mr. Ambassador, for this discussion. I know I, I think the, the ambassador nailed it there. I would just add that, you know, generally speaking, I'm supportive of arms control agreements if they will promote U.S. national security interests and promote stability and security. But if you're doing those agreements with partners who have habitually struggled, frankly, to comply with the agreements and habitually struggled to be honest, I think we have to be extra careful about the verification and compliance mechanisms in any uh, treaty, whether it be a new one or whether it's one that re-upped. And I know that's been a real focus for the ambassador. If I could build on that a little bit, let, let's just review the recent history of Russia as a serial arms control violator. Okay. Yeah. So we we're in a situation where Russia has systematically destroyed conventional arms control in Europe. They continue to stand in violation of the open skies treaty, uh, which, uh, which left us with no option. The only enforcement mechanism we had was to ultimately withdraw from that agreement but Russia was preventing overflight of Russian territory, which they are legally obliged to allow. Uh, they were also using their illegal occupation of a, a huge part of the Republic of Georgia, as well as Moldova, to similarly deny uh, uh, overflight uh, for uh, the treaty-allowed aircraft. Russia withdrew from the Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Treaty. Uh, which uh, was actually renegotiated under the Clinton administration several times to accommodate their massive violations uh, of that treaty uh, back in the 90s. Uh, Russia stands in violation of the Vienna document requirements for notifications on conventional troop movements and exercises. Russia is violated the Helsinki Final Act and the UN Charter uh, by their illegal uh, occupation and attempted annexation of Crimea and the irregular warfare that they continue to practice in Ukraine today. Uh, when you turn to the nuclear field, uh, you know, Russia engaged in egregious uh, clandestine uh, testing, development, and ultimately deployment of nuclear-capable medium-range ballistic and cruise missiles and ultimately destroyed the INF Treaty. Uh, through, through that set of serial treaty violations. And perhaps most uh, outrageously, 
And this is something that uh, that I warned when I was serving on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee back in the 90s and the Chemical Weapons Convention was ratified. If you go back and you read the historical record, I warned that they were developing the Novichuk class of nerve agents and they intended to cheat on the CWC. And lo and behold, over the past few years, we've now seen the Russian intelligence services engaged in targeted assassination attempts against uh, political dissidents, and the Volnay being a good example, uh, using this ultra-lethal Novichuk nerve agent. This is outrageous stuff, uh, and, uh, it, and it underpins why one must be incredibly cautious and meticulous when one deals across the negotiating table with the Russians. Well, I mean, just elaborate on that for a minute a little bit, because, you know, if I know that a guy always cheats at poker, I'm probably not going to be eager to sit down at a table and play with him and think it's enough to say, hey, caught you in the past. I don't want to catch you this time when you know this guy has cheated in the past, is cheating in the present, is going to cheat in the future. How do you negotiate? How do you successfully negotiate? You can get his signature on a document, but you can't get um, easily is him abiding by it and saying, yeah, I understand we're trying to have a rules-based order here and it's important I play my role and that I be a, a good a good stakeholder and a responsible global citizen when, you know, he ain't any of those things. Well, you, you know, you do want to avoid feeling like Charlie Brown and Lucy and the football. <laughs> uh, and there there is a little bit of that uh, on a repeat basis when it comes to the Russians and arms control. Uh, at the same time, uh, we do have to recognize <clears throat> that the Russians are engaged in a series of dangerous and destabilizing activities, uh, particularly in the nuclear weaponry field, um, which we seek to uh, arrest or alleviate or otherwise uh, uh, cause them to, to choose a different path. And here I'll just uh, talk briefly about a couple of things that, that are frankly quite alarming. You know, the United States is not engaged in a nuclear buildup. Uh, we're modernizing our forces under President Trump for the first time. It's long overdue. Uh, was delayed uh, uh, from the Clinton administration all the way through the Obama administration. But under President Trump, with the 2018 nuclear posture review, we finally are getting at uh, replacing the Minuteman III missiles, which are, are old and aging, uh, and bringing online a number of new capabilities. Russia, on the other hand, is engaged in an arms race. They are today massively building up the size of their nuclear arsenal, particularly in the short and medium range type of weapon systems that I was talking about. So here I'm talking about torpedoes and artillery shells and short range ballistic and cruise missiles tipped with nuclear weapons. They also have invested in these outrageous doomsday science projects, very strange Lovian <clears throat> projects, like a nuclear-powered, nuclear-tipped cruise missile. Now just think about that, a nuclear reactor spewing out radiation behind a cruise missile that flies around for some extended period of time. And they've got the same kind of ridiculous concept for an undersea weapon. Mm. Uh, these are things which we, we fail to see why a country with an economy the size of the state of New York um, nuclear armed as they may be, but why this is a good idea when they've got far more urgent priorities like pension reform um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and an, an aging population, that money really should be better pointed elsewhere. And we think that through a series of uh, politically binding arrangements that ultimately we would transition into a treaty, 
uh, we can help steer the Russians in the right direction. But even more critically to our way of thinking, we're interested in charting a course with Russia today because we intend to immediately pivot and apply that to the rising Chinese threat. You know, Brett, uh, I, I, I think what the ambassador says makes great sense to an American. I'm not sure, and it may make great sense to the average Russian. I'm not sure it makes great sense to Vladimir Putin. And I wonder if you're confident that should we have a new administration in January, modernization will continue at a good clip, uh, or will it slow down because they'll say almost <laughs> what the ambassador said, no, we don't need money for nuclear modernization. We need money for um, various social causes in the U.S. Um, and I wonder if we don't need also to, in your view, and you've worked on these issues a long time, to not just modernize, but to build and increase. That's a harder sell, but if our adversaries are doing it, don't we need to do it? Well, thanks, Cliff, for the question. I, I think, and this is a point, I'll make a couple of points I know uh, the ambassadors made in the past, but I think are worth uh, reiterating, and that is there's a strong connection between modernizing our forces and arms control. And not only are we making ourselves more secure by deterring an attack on our country, by complicating the planning of our adversaries, we're also empowering people like the ambassador in their negotiations. Right. So right. even if one is enters the conversation, let's say one's left of center and you kind of, you're a little bit skeptical maybe of some of this or that modernization program, but you're a big fan of arms control. If you're a big fan of arms control and the stability and security that they can bring if properly formulated, then you should formulate it. Then you should also be a fan of U.S. modernization of our triad because that's going to make our efforts uh, more powerful at the negotiating table. And by the way, make us more secure. I'd also add that uh, the ambassador went through a great litany of all the ways that the Kremlin has cheated. I would just provide a little bit more detail on one of them. On the INF Treaty, right, they cheated for a long time, right? And, and what they've done is they've filled a, you know, SSC-8 nuclear-tip ground launch cruise missiles that are threatening not Omaha or Washington, D.C. or New York. They're threatening Europe. And so, you know, perhaps that's why NATO has been so aligned with us in a lot of these efforts. And you know, there's concerns often on Capitol Hill, as the ambassador know from his time up there about, oh, you know, we're going to initiate an arms race. The Russians and Chinese are already racing. The question is whether we're going to see the world as it is and not as we want it to be and what we're going to do about it. You know, Putin likes to achieve military advantage. And then once he's achieved that military advantage, suddenly want to ink a deal that codifies the status quo that's to his advantage. And uh, I think we have to be smarter than that and not let him get away with it. Yeah, I just got to make one point here, and please feel free to elaborate on it, both of you. There is this view, and it's held within a significant portion of the foreign policy elite, that if we don't race, then there will be no arms race. When in fact, if you're in a race and you sit down, what happens is the other competitors beat you. It's very similar to the idea of we can end endless wars if we just stop fighting, which is akin to saying if I'm in the ring um, and doing <laughs> in a prize fight and I lie down on the map or sit down, that's the end of the fight. If I stop, if I put my arms down, no, he'll probably sock you in the nose, knock you out is what he'll do. And it, and, it, and it's odd that people as smart as they are in the foreign policy think that we can stop arms races by not racing and stop endless wars by not fighting and not see that in both cases you end up defeated. Ambassador, am I wrong on that? Is that oversimplifying the problem? Not in the least. Uh, and in fact, one of the, <clears throat> one of the 
flaws in arms control is that uh, people dress it up and make it sound a lot more complicated than it really is. Uh, it, it, the reality is that President Trump and President Reagan have a number of things in common, but at the heart of their philosophy is the concept of uh, and the maxim of peace through strength. And we're not going to negotiate uh, arms control deals that put the United States and our allies uh, in jeopardy. Uh, rather, we're going to build the capabilities we need to, de to deter the adversaries. And make no let's make no mistake about it. We don't conduct arms control treaties or agreements with friends. We right. conduct them with hostile nations. And in the case of Russia and the case of China, we are not talking about democracies. And we are not talking about countries that respect the rule of law or respect the geographical boundaries of their neighbors. I mentioned Russia's attempted annexation of Crimea. If one pivots to look at what Xi Jinping is doing across Asia with border disputes uh, with nearly every one of his neighbors, I mean, he even has a border dispute with the North Koreans. <laughs> Just think about that. Mm -hmm. so, so we are not dealing with um, trustworthy regimes. We're dealing with adversaries. And we have to be extremely cautious that we do not trade away uh, the capabilities that that uh, we need to have either uh, through some type of poorly considered arms control agreement or through unilateral uh, disarmament. Uh, and so as we look to the next administration, continuing this long overdue modernization that I mentioned is vital. Uh, and any effort uh, to walk away from that approach of building the capabilities we need uh, should be taken as as uh, as uh, as a signal that uh, the future of any of any additional arms control treaties on the nuclear front will probably be in grave question when it comes to the U United States Senate. So again, I, I caution: if the next administration wants a, a future nuclear deal, they're going to need to proceed with the modernization first. And just ask you, Brad, you because you worked in, uh, on the Hill a long time. Do you have a sense of whether there is support, bipartisan support? For modernization, do you have a sense of the whether Biden, who was uh, chairman of Senate Foreign Relations Committee for some time, and the people he's bringing in understand the uh, the importance of modernization? I think there is a um, an important and positive general consensus about the importance of nuclear modernization, both among Republicans and Democrats. I think people who look at these issues in detail. Uh, with, with a serious mindset, uh, arrive at the conclusion that we absolutely have to modernize our nuclear triad, our nuclear deterrent. Uh, and I see that among, among both Republicans and Democrats. There have been questions along the way about whether uh, we need a triad or a dyad, whether we uh, need to modernize the, the ICBM leg. But I think generally speaking, there is, there is a consensus that we do need to modernize our nuclear triad solely for our own security, not to mention the benefits related to arms control uh, that I would, if I could just underscore one additional thing, Cliff, if I may, the, the ambassador did a great job talking about um, all the things that Russia is doing. I mean, it really bears repeating, I think, that we are, United States, generally speaking, we're not expanding our arsenal. We're simply modernizing, whereas Russia is modernizing and expanding. And many or most of the areas, and the ambassador can correct me if I get any of this wrong, most of the areas where they're expanding are what some people call non-strategic nuclear weapons, which is kind of a crazy concept, right? A nuclear weapon is like a nuclear weapon to some degree. We can talk about debt levels of yield. It's more accurately called an unconstrained nuclear weapon. In other words, these are these are things that Moscow is doing outside the New START Treaty. So if we're going to re renew the New START Treaty, 
it, we would be crazy not to include, as the ambassador is saying, all nuclear weapons and to have the strongest possible verica- verification mechanisms in place. If we don't, we're simply playing right into Putin's game, in my view. Yeah, let me let me amplify that, Brad, because you're exactly right. Uh, we are not interested in simply extending the New START treaty. That treaty, like I mentioned, barely passed the United States Senate. It had 27 votes against it. All you need is 34 to kill a treaty. Uh, And the reason there was so much opposition to the New START Treaty in the Senate is because it was a bad deal for the United States. It covered roughly 90% of the U.S. arsenal uh, and covered only around 40% of the Russian weaponry. Because as you mentioned, the Russians have all of these nuclear warheads that they're building for shorter range systems. Every single nuclear warhead is strategic in nature. This idea of non-strategic nuclear warheads is ridiculous. It's simply the distance that it flies based on what, what you've stuck it on uh, is, all of, is all the differentiator here. And so we've made clear to the Russians that, you know what, we're not going to leave our NATO allies vulnerable. We're not going to leave American citizens living in Europe vulnerable. Uh, we are going to insist that if we are going to extend the New START Treaty, that we equalize the ratios here and that we capture all of the uh, Russian systems that fall currently exempt and outside the Obama Treaty. Uh, that's why we've said that we need a cap on all, all warheads because the Russians are building up. They, they are actually set to potentially double the number of, uh, of these non-strategic weapons in the coming years if they keep on the pace that they're on. Uh, we're not pumping out hundreds and hundreds of more uh, warheads of any type. Uh, we are maintaining the inventory that we have and, and our people are doing a great job. Uh, and it's sufficient for what we need to provide the extended uh, deterrence guarantees uh, to our allies, uh, both in, in Europe and Asia as well. But we cannot sit by and watch uh, a regime that forcibly occupies uh, European territory uh, continue to build up nuclear weapons, particularly when they have a doctrine that calls for first use, the so-called escalate to win, we invade, we nuke, the other side simply surrenders. Uh, that's a dangerous concept. We can't agree to it. Uh, it's got uh, it's got incredibly uh, dark ramifications for European security, and that's why President Trump took the bold move that he took. And frankly, President Putin agreed, and so we're going to hold him to that going forward. Any administration that brings back a simple extension of New Start without capitalizing on the Putin-Trump agreement uh, will have demonstrated a profound lack of negotiating acumen. And would also be blowing off the instructions of the U.S. Senate when we when they ratified the New START Treaty that said we needed to be working toward exactly what you're saying. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. I want to go to China, but before I do, I'm going to digress just for a minute. Uh, you mentioned earlier that we negotiate arms control uh, not with our friends, uh, but with our adversaries of, of various sorts. Um, recently uh, on Twitter, uh, Michael McFall. Uh, a man I know a bit. Uh, he was ambassador under the Obama administration to Russia. He's a scholar. I have respect for him. But he talked about the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that was concluded, the, the executive agreement that, that President Obama concluded. Um, as, uh, as always, look, it's, it's an arms control agreement and here's what it does and doesn't do and it has the 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 the, the faults and the and the, the pluses and the minuses of any arms control agreement and rich goldberg who works for fdd now who was on the national security council not long ago it's working this also in the senate and the house i said you misunderstand it, this was not an arms control agreement this was something very different and i want to just get your sense 
on the JCPOA, the Iran deal, and whether that qualifies as an arms control agreement or whether that's a misunderstanding, as Rich suggests, a misunderstanding among even some very sophisticated uh, actors in this in this realm. Well, Clifford, I, I tend to side with Rich on this point. Uh, in, in arms, any arms control agreement that doesn't have effective verification. Uh, or meaningful uh, constraints uh, is, is not an arms control agreement. It's arms control folly. Mm. And let me let me be real clear here. The mm-hmm. reason why the Obama administration wound up with the JCPOA uh, as a politically binding accord as opposed to a treaty is because the folly was well recognized in, uh, across uh, bipartisan lines in the Senate, and they knew they couldn't muster the votes. Uh, to pass that thing as a treaty. As I mentioned, it only takes a third, uh, one one vote more than a third of the United States Senate to reject uh, any particular treaty, something that happens rarely. Uh, It happened, for instance, with the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, Uh, but it certainly would have happened with the JCPOA if they had transmitted it uh, as such. So it it should not be regarded as an arms control agreement. It should be regarded as, as something else and something deeply flawed at that. Okay. Getting on to China. Um, China is building up its nuclear arsenal. Uh, China is establishing uh, bases overseas. Uh, China is uh, is not just in a defensive posture, protecting its interests, it seems to me, but is clearly competing and looking to compete with the U.S. and, and uh, militarily over the long term, uh, achieving its own strategic nuclear triad. And it's not interested, as I understand it, in arms control because it wants to continue building up. And that creates an, another problem because if, if we conclude an arms control agreement with Russia and leave China out, we're leaving ourselves at a disadvantage, aren't we? We would be. And that's precisely why we're not going to do that. Uh, the, and, and frankly, the Russians themselves get it. Uh, my counterpart, uh, the Deputy Foreign Minister, Sergei Ryabkov, himself has repeatedly said that the next uh, nuclear arms control treaty has to be multilateral. Mm-hmm. Now, he, of course, would include in that definition uh, the British and the French, uh, but uh, he also would include the Chinese. And so we share that in common. We believe that the next nuclear arms control treaty must be trilateral. Um, you know, Pick your term here. But the reason for that is that the old U.S.-Soviet Cold War bipolar uh, way of doing business, uh, negotiating just the two countries against one another, makes no sense when you have a third power that is engaged in a massive, secretive, and unconstrained nuclear buildup. I've rattled off a number of the things that Russia's doing that concern us, but I must say, in comparison with the communist Chinese, it pales. It pales. Mm. The Chinese are engaged in a, a an incredibly secretive crash nuclear buildup. You know the same kind of stonewalling that they presented the world with the Great Wall of Secrecy over the coronavirus, which they deliberately let spread around the globe. Uh, we are faced with that stonewalling on any number of issues, but chief among them, their massive nuclear and missile buildup. Uh, we're talking about a country that, uh, uh, and, and, and one of the images that I put out, uh, I gave a classified briefing to NATO and then we declassified the imagery, it's on my Twitter feed, uh, shows uh, the difference in the, uh, in the annual or in the, uh, in the parade, the missile parade that they just conducted this past uh, October compared with 10 years prior. 
the length, the, the line of missiles on parade stretched uh, more than two and a half miles. It was 10 times as long as what it was a decade ago. Uh, you know, just, just a couple of, of numbers here. In 2019, China shot off 225 ballistic missiles. That's a huge number, 225 missile shots. That's more than the rest of the world combined. Those are tests that they're doing. Well, tests, uh, uh, test training, uh, development programs, you name it. I mean, they want and they have a huge missile arsenal and they are engaged in more testing and more training and more development than the entire rest of the world. Same was true in 2018. And now what we've seen uh, as as of November, they'd shot more than 220 missiles. They're on track to beat their own record. Mm-hmm. And so what are they doing with all of this missile buildup? The, the answer is that they are d- building and deploying. I, we talked a little bit about these INF category missiles where we were prohibited by a treaty from having these things. The Russians cheated. They deployed the SSC-8 that Brad mentioned. Well, guess what? The Chinese were never constrained by that treaty. And they have today, sitting across from Taiwan and on the eastern seaboard of their country, between 1,200 and 2,000 of these kinds of missiles, dual capable, they could put a conventional warhead on them or a nuclear warhead, 13 different categories of missiles. Mm. We don't yet today have a single type of, of such a system. We are developing one, the Marines and the Army together. We urgently need it. We're going to need it for both Europe and to defend Asia. But we're staring down the barrel of, of a massive Chinese arsenal that continues to grow by the hundreds uh, every year. And the same is true in terms of their nuclear stockpile. Uh, they want the world to believe that they are a minimalist, no first use kind of nuclear power. Uh, and they want to hide uh, behind the British and the French. The reality is that we know that they intend in due course to achieve some type of nuclear parity with the United States. Now, whether that's quantitative at the outset or qualitative, I couldn't really say. But uh, we see uh, with uh, the secretive uh, work that they're doing at their nuclear test site. Uh, oh, by the way, they tell people that uh, they're not engaged in nuclear testing, but you can see that they've excavated a small mountain uh, out of their nuclear test shafts. Wonder what they're doing down there. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we've I've put out imagery of the f- square footage that they've constructed in the past couple of years at their nuclear weapons production facilities. It's mammoth. Uh, the same is true on their missile side. So we're not only talking about a country that is a revisionist power that thinks that they can just sail in, literally sail in the South China Sea and redraw maps by building fake islands, uh, or unilaterally redraw the border with India by attacking soldiers across the line of contact, or, and the list goes on, uh, they recently, another uh, encounter with the Japanese over the Senkakus. They are in border uh, disputes with nearly every one of their neighbors. Uh, it's something, by the way, that we've reminded the Russians of because <laughs> Russians, uh, there's 150 million Russians today. There's 1.5 billion Chinese. I wonder how that's going to work out in the long run. Guys, that raises two questions. I'll start with you, Brad, on both of them, and I'll ask both of them so I don't forget them. One is, this has been going on for a long time, not just over the last four years, these developments in China. you can't. These are programs that they have put in place. You were in the Senate. Uh, the past administrations and past Congresses, did they simply turn a blind eye to this because it was convenient to do so or because it was at least inconvenient to recognize what the Chinese were doing? And the second question, which I'll just throw out there as well, is if you're Vladimir Putin, 
You're very pleased that the Chinese are making life difficult for the Americans. On the other hand, you know enough about your history to know that there are basic geopolitical conflicts under the surface um, and that you you will have some problem with your tiny economy the size of New York State or Italy, um, with your population at 150 million, with this huge landmass that you got to figure a nation of over a billion is looking at thinking, you know, I'm not sure Russia needs all this land and I kind of do. So you, if you're Putin, it's, do you see China as an adversary or an ally, or is it both in some complex way that's hard to understand? Sorry to give you both questions at once. No, that's like a smorgasbord. That's great. There's <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah. Good there. Uh, if I don't cover all of it, let me know. I'll try to move quickly, though. The, I, I think it's fair to say and that so many of us, so many Americans, and frankly, our allies in Europe well have been slow to wake up to the threat from Beijing. Uh, you've you've written on cliff and understand it well. I think we're in the process of waking up. I often use this silly metaphor of you know two gladiators in the in the Roman arena, and one is uh, Beijing and one is us. And we've been asleep on the ground while they've been picking our pocket with intellectual property and beating on us. And then we're we're standing up and waking up and starting to defend ourselves. And, and suddenly we're the problem, uh, you know, because we're simply defending ourselves. So there's so much more work to do. We have to do, better understand the military civil fusion threat. We have to help our allies in, Germ- in Germany and elsewhere understand this. It's so much just more than the military. But I take your point that we were slow in waking up. Real quickly, not in, in, in terms of China, it's not just, uh, in my view, the scope of what they're doing, which the ambassador covered so well. And, and, and as he knows far better than me, it's also the nature of what they're doing. I mean, they're working uh, apparently on an air-launched ballistic missile that would, for them, complete, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a nuclear triad. So it's, you know, they're expanding the scope and they're developing a nuclear triad. And and let's not forget that they recently put out a video that showed an attack on Guam and U.S. bases on Guam. Their, their military put out a video. So it's, 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 I mean, it's talking about kind of obnoxious behavior. So they're doing that. And then the secrecy that the ambassador is talking about, you know, um, Former Pentagon official James Anderson uh, did a op-ed in New York Times uh, earlier this year where he made a point that I think is really important to repeat. And that is, it's not just annoying that Beijing is being so secretive, it's dangerous. Because when they're secretive, uh, that uh, that forces us to plan for the worst case scenario, right? So that forces us to invest in things and programs and capabilities that we may not otherwise because of the secrecy. Having to plan for the worst case scenario because we don't know exactly what they're doing because they're being so opaque. And that leads, that's very destabilizing and that potentially leads to miscalculation. And then just very quickly, our, our, our director of national intelligence has said, yes, Russia and China are closer in many ways than they've been since the 1950s. But if you go back and review the history, it's also clear there's a, been a lot of problems through the years, as your question implies, Cliff, between Beijing and Moscow. And so, you know, when we think, you know, a lot of people spent their careers focusing on bilateral uh, nuclear deterrence, mutual sure destruction, all that, and kind of the relative stability of a bilateral relationship. When you bring in a trilateral element, right, any one of those three countries can do something thinking, hey, you know, the Chinese might do something focused on us and not forgetting how that the Russians are going to want to respond. And you're so right. The Russian economy is roughly one eighth that of China. So if I'm Putin, you know, you better be real concerned that what China is doing is going to spark an arms race with the United States, and it's going to once again bankrupt Moscow. So I would think that Putin would have a real incentive to want to bring China into to these any new arms agreement, uh, because after all, they're a little bit closer to China than we are. 
Brad has a comprehensive answer. Do you want to add or, or, or disagree with any of that, Ambassador? No, I, I, I really would be hard-pressed to have said it better. Um, you know, Cliff, the, 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 the problem is that Vladimir Putin has behaved in such an egregious and irresponsible way around the world that he's got no friends. Uh, the best he's got is Chairman Xi, uh, and so he, he doesn't have much uh, maneuvering room at this stage. Um, you know, they, they certainly understand the importance of including China in a future uh, nuclear uh, framework. Uh, right now, they're not going to lift a finger to help us get the Chinese to the table. Uh, that's just fine as it goes for now. But let's also, you know, remember that we have in the United States and in Europe uh, a, a foreign policy elite that think that the democratization of China is just one more trade deal away, just mm -hmm. one more diplomatic roundtable away. Chairman Xi is no Democrat, and it's far from it. This is someone who runs concentration camps for Uyghurs. In this day and age, in 2020, we have millions of people incarcerated in concentration camps in China. This is someone who has destroyed the democracy of Hong Kong who is planning on forcibly destroying the democracy of Taiwan. Uh, this is a, a country that already is behaving irresponsibly and as a bully with its neighbors. Can you imagine this country being armed to the gills with nuclear warheads uh, on par with what uh, either we or the Russians uh, might have uh, and what kind of threat and menace to global security they will pose at that point? That is why the time for meaningful arms control is now. The time for nuclear arms control is not after China has built up to the levels that uh, that we and the Russians are at, but rather now to forestall uh, the emergence of this three-way arms race that Brad is, is warning about. In fact, I would suggest that it doesn't stop at a three-way arms race. One must not forget the Indians and the Pakistanis in these equations. So we are looking at a regime in Beijing, which through its actions and through its crash and secretive nuclear buildup, is imperiling uh, the equilibrium that we were able to establish during the Cold War and have successfully maintained since. President Trump doesn't want to see that happen, and that's why he's insisted that the next treaty must include China as a precondition. I got basically two questions I want to get in in the few minutes we, we have left. One is, we both of you have mentioned our allies. I wanted you, Ambassador, to talk a little bit about, as candidly as you can, about the extent to which our allies NATO allies for sure, but certainly Australia, New Zealand, I know you've had some comments on in the past, uh, India, to the, what extent they are really helping us with these important tasks and to what extent we really should be asking for more and they should be doing more. Well, so let's start uh, with NATO. And I must say uh, the relationship, and as you might expect, as, as, the, as a former Assistant Secretary General of NATO, um, I hold uh, the importance of the transatlantic relationship near and dear, and I've spent a great deal of time uh, working with uh, both the individual nations as well as the collective uh, alliance as a whole, keeping them fully informed uh, both before and after discussions and negotiations with the Russians, and I'm pleased to say that uh, they're on board. They've been very supportive of our approach. Uh, the allies, most of the allies will tell you that they still would like to see the New START treaty extended. That's understandable given uh, the historic, historical approach of the Europeans to um, treaties. They, they really are far more enamored of, of, of treaties than we tend to be, uh, but we get it. Uh, but they also get the fact that uh, 
that the New START treaty does really nothing for allied security because the Russians are building all of these weapons pointed at Europe uh, that are not bound uh, under any strictures. Uh, and so they have recognized also that that this moment in time, with New START st- uh, set to expire in February, that Putin is desperate to keep the United States locked in because it, it, this treaty advantages him. Uh, and that desperation translates into significant negotiating leverage. That's why we were able to get the public pledge to put the cap on. Now, we were undercut by uh, claims by certain other parties that they would just willy-nilly extend the treaty for five years. Uh, and we're now sort of in a holding pattern, which is regrettable given the historic juncture that we're at. But uh, I think it's important that we uh, don't move backwards from what we've been able to achieve with the Russians. Many of the NATO allies, the Dutch, I believe, were the first uh, to actually publicly call out the Chinese for their buildup. Uh, and you had a remarkable uh, a series of pronunciations in recent days by the NATO Secretary General, uh, by the foreign ministers uh, in, in meeting and the defense ministers, all of them highlighting the threat to global peace and security that the, that the Chinese nuclear buildup poses. So I think we've had a sea change in the recognition that the future uh, approach will not be bilateral. It must be trilateral at a minimum. Uh, when it comes to Asia, we've had good support out of uh, both our Korean and Japanese allies. Uh, they well understand the threat uh, that they're facing. And we're going to work with the Japanese uh, and the Koreans on a series of defensive capabilities that they're going to need uh, for the future. Very quickly, Brad, if you got thoughts on that, and then I've got a, a final question. Sounds good. To our allies, I would say many of these developments we're talking about today threaten you more than Americans. The ground launch cruise missiles in Europe uh, threaten Europeans, uh, not Americans, uh, notwithstanding the many Americans that are stationed there. And uh, what China is doing uh, not only threatens Taiwan, as the ambassador said, but it, it threatens the uh, uh, you know the many many Americans living in Japan, the, the U.S. troops stationed there. It threatens the 160,000 Americans in Guam. And as uh, the ambassadors said elsewhere, uh, some of these new systems that they're reached U.S. territory in, in 30 minutes or so. So it threatens both allies and us. And we're going to be far more effective if we come together as allies and then go to Moscow and Beijing to try to achieve our objectives very quickly. What are our interests? Our interests are stability and security. What are the three leading threats to those interests? It's Russian cheating. It's the Russian development of, of nuclear weapons unconstrained by the current formulation of New START. And it's China's modernization and expansion of their nuclear arsenal. Those are the threats. So what do we do? We do a new new start that includes all nukes, that includes China, and that has the strongest possible verification compliance measures. I think if we do that, we'll be in a much better place than we are right now. Clifford, let me just add, you know, yeah. Brad has just set out uh, the yardstick by which any future agreement will be measured. And any future agreement that fails that litmus test, that fails that minimum standard of covering all nukes, of effective verification applied against the challenge of of nuclear warhead production, monitoring, and facilities, and which uh, includes the Chinese, if those three elements are not present, the United States Senate should roundly reject uh, any any agreement uh, that fails to live up to that test. So a final question I have is about arms control, not on the rhetorical, but in the kinetic sense. What I mean is missile defense. Uh, It's long seen to me, and I could be wrong, so if I am, disabuse me of these notions, that it is not technologically impossible for us to have as a goal and achieve as a goal that any missile that goes up anywhere in the world 
we can prevent it from reaching its victims if we decide to do so with a layered and comprehensive missile defense system, the kind of thing that Ronald Reagan envisioned. It wasn't technologically possible then. I'm not sure it isn't within reach now. And I'd just love to get both of your thoughts on that. Well, so this is an area where, again, I feel that we we probably have not made uh, the kind of investments that we really should uh, have made over the years. But under President Trump, um, there has been uh, a renewed focus on missile defense and revitalization of our capabilities. The successful intercept a few weeks ago of an ICBM by an Aegis cruiser was an amazing thing. And it shows that those who who... Uh, who talked about this concept of layered defense and the ability to put up a missile shield to protect all Americans have been right from the very beginning. And the technology is now there. Uh, there have been another, a number of other successful missile defense intercepts. Um, as is always the case in offensive and defensive capabilities, there, there's a seesaw that moves back and forth on the technological spectrum. Hypersonic warheads are going to make missile defense uh, challenging uh, in the future. That's precisely why the Russians have built and fielded nuclear hypersonic uh, warheads. It's why the Chinese are engaged in so much testing uh, uh, in this area as well. And ultimately, we're going to have hypersonics uh, also. But uh, what's great about how we're, we're conducting our missile defense work in the United States is that the Missile Defense Agency is participating in all of our hypersonic work and benefiting from the development programs there and understanding how those things work, because we will be able to intercept uh, those kinds of warheads in the future. And we should. It, frankly, the American people want to be protected from nuclear blackmail, regardless of whether we're talking about uh, North Korean-tipped uh, missiles or Iranian missiles or Chinese or Russian missiles. Uh, the job of any president is to protect the American people from all threats, foreign and domestic. Uh, and, uh, and so I think uh, under President Trump, uh, we've driven hard on that goal. You know, efforts by the Russians to drag us into missile defense limitations, uh, both uh, quantitatively and uh, ge geographically, have failed. We've rejected those roundly, and we're not going to sign up to any such uh, impairments and impediments. And hopefully the next administration will draw the same bright red line. Brad, your thoughts on this uh, topic? I've always brought a bit of a skeptical view to suggestions that we need to limit our missile defense activities. That's like saying, hey, why don't you not protect your family? <laughs> right? I, I'm a fan of protecting oneself, one's family, oneself, one's family, one's country. Uh, so that's kind of where I start. Um, and and I, we've talked a bit today about uh, the Kremlin's cynicism and, and, and difficult relationship with the truth. Uh, you know, a lot of Americans, some on Capitol Hill, wring their hands about, you know, the destabling effects of American missile defense, forgetting little simple facts like, oh, the Russians have more homeland missile defense interceptors than we have currently. And by the way, correct me if I'm wrong, Ambassador, some of those above Moscow are nuclear tipped, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. Look, you know, the, the right to defend oneself is a moral imperative. Uh, and those who suggest that there's something intrinsically wrong with being able to defend yourself uh, have got such a skewed uh, worldview that I'm not even sure where to where to start on that. Uh, we've got to be able to defend the American people. If there's anything destabilizing in, the, in that equation, it's the con construct of all of these different kinds of missiles uh, that are intended to blackmail and threaten the American people and our friends and our allies. And we're simply not going to let that happen. And I would just add our current formulation, you know, gives us a modicum of protection against a, a, an attack from North Korea 
And, you know, uh, Iran is just a matter of time until they convert their space launch program into an ICBM. And we have a modern protection. We don't have shoot, look, shoot. I think we need to be working on that. Uh, but, you know, the Kremlin and Beijing, no, unfortunately, we don't have the means to protect uh, against a massive attack from them, both in terms of scale and difficulty of it. And any suggestion otherwise is just ridiculous. And they know it. Well, this has been a fast-paced and uh, fascinating discussion, and I, I want to thank you, Ambassador, and thank you too, Brad. I think you've made it accessible for a lot of for a lot of people who may not have known a lot about this these complex issues. Um, but for those who are sophisticates, uh, they've uh, been edified as well. I certainly have been. So thanks again. Thank you for your good work, Ambassador Brad. Proud to have you as my colleague, um, and I hope to speak to you to again before very long. Until then, thanks to everybody else who's listening out there. We're pleased always to have you with us here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.